Pat, you did it again. You showed up to a Division three college football game, and it was freaking fantastic. <laughs> How do you keep doing it? I'm very selective in what game I'm going to go to, first off. And I say that, and I think about, well, I didn't expect Keystone Anna Maria to be effing fantastic, but it, it certainly ended up being that. I don't know, man. I mean, here's the thing. It's just been an effing fantastic season, so... I think the odds are just higher in general that you're going to end up at a fantastic game. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 322, season 16, episode 22, and the podcast for November 28th of 2022. I'm Pat Coleman, the guy who runs D3Football.com, who hasn't had a good voice in about five podcasts now. I went back and listened to an interview we did with Steve Johnson back in August. Like, oh yeah, that's what my voice sounds like. Everybody please remember that. I'm Greg Thomas. I write around the nation at d3football.com. Pat, it's card season. It's Christmas cards, gift cards, and disrespect cards, Pat. But no disrespect here in this podcast. Only respect for another phenomenal round of playoffs as this 2022 season continues to roll on in all of its glory and greatness. We should let you know that this edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by Stevenson University, the hosts of the 2022 Stag Bowl at Navy Marine Corps Stadium in Annapolis, Maryland. Of course, we've been talking about it over the course of the past several podcasts. I think uh, people should know about the Stag Bowl website that is here. You have information about the stadium. You have information about area hotels that is uh, coming that is super important. Information about the city of Annapolis, uh, you know, places to eat in the area at uh, visitannapolis.org. All sorts of things that will make your trip to the Stag Bowl. Now that there are just eight of you who are teams vying to compete in that game, should make your trip to the Stag Bowl even more attainable, reachable, understandable, and planable. That's right, Pat. Tickets are available right now for Stag Bowl 49. You can get tickets at NCAA.com is a place where you can go to find tickets for the game. Uh, Tickets for this game, $15 for adults, $10 for seniors and students. And, you know, it's not a Ticketmaster situation, so reasonable, reasonable convenience fees for those online ticket purchases. Pat, looking forward to Annapolis. We are just 18 days away from Stag Bowl 49. We sure are. If you have trouble navigating the uh, NCA website to find those sorts of things, we totally understand. Go to bit.ly slash stag49ticks, S-T-A-G-G 49ticks. You'll find that information in our show notes on our show page, and we will put it back out there on Twitter on Monday. All right. Drama, drama, drama on a Sunday as everybody did a double slash triple take at the bracket when it came out or, you know, read the very matter-of-fact tweet that we put out about it and realized, wait a minute, Delaware Valley is hosting this game, not Mount Union? 
Something that should have happened 51 weeks ago, perhaps in the 2021 national semifinals, the committee goes back and reads criteria and makes a decision. And that's what happened this time around. Just people cannot wrap their brains around it. It is a little shock to the system. You don't often see an undefeated Mount Union team traveling in any round of the playoffs until you get to the Stag Bowl. Um, but yeah, this definitely a surprise, uh, certainly to you. To me, I didn't get this information for a little while. I was late to the party. I was barreling my way across the Sonoran Desert back from uh, Thanksgiving holiday in Phoenix this weekend. Surprising to see that announcement, but Pat, I think when you dig into the numbers, it's not that surprising. No, it's really not. A short version of it is that strength of schedule is kind of like the tiebreaker here. And then then now people are going to go, well, why is Bethel traveling to Mary Harden Baylor? Uh, The reason for that is because those teams don't have the same record. Not only do Mount Union and Delaware Valley have the same record, they both came into the tournament ranked number one in a region. And, you know, I think other criteria kind of favor, indeed, Delaware Valley in this instance. It does. If you look at it, Pat, both teams are 10-0, and perfect uh, 1,000 win percentages, uh, which is the primary criteria. Delaware Valley... 3-0 and against regionally ranked teams. They defeated Region 1 ranked teams 3, 5, and 7. And Delaware Valley has a 572 strength of schedule. Mount Union also 10-0, but just 2-0 and against regionally ranked teams. They defeated the 5th and 7th ranked teams in Region 4. And a 498 strength of schedule. That's a difference of about... strength of schedule points, which is significant. That's a significant difference. And one that really this year's selection committee, I think has been consistent about how they look at that strength of schedule number and how they apply it. So Delaware Valley advantages in those major criteria, not a huge surprise really that they would be selected to host over Mount Union. No, I guess really the the surprise here, Greg, is that the committee decided to actually delve that far into the criteria because in the past, what has happened mostly in these cases is they've just gone directly to the performance in the previous playoff tiebreaker when you're talking about a couple of unbeaten teams and you just kind of assume they've certainly, I think even it's fair to say, gone out of their way recently to give Mountain Union home games. Uh, They could try to just assume that was going to happen this time too. I think so. I think after we saw what happened last year, didn't make a lot of sense. We learned what happened in the process behind that. And we've also learned that that was completely incorrect. Uh, what happened with Mount Union and the semifinal game last year against North Central. I think it is, I think it's an, an important step that this year's committee has taken to not just look at those 10 and O's versus 10 and O's and default to previous championship performance when the difference in criteria is as significant as it appears to be here, um, that piece of criteria was there to, the language in the handbook will tell us that that is there to use as a tiebreaker amongst undefeated teams. Yeah, And this isn't really a tie. No, definitely not a tie. As you, If you even it out, line it all out and look at it. I don't think some of these other ones are ties. You think about Ithaca and North Central. Ithaca unbeaten, 1-0 against regionally ranked opponents and a strength of schedule that is like 30-some points higher than North Central, which is unbeaten, 2-0 and against regionally ranked opponents, and also has a it's a strength of schedule that's over 500. It's pretty decent. It's lower than Ithaca, but I think that that is not a tie. Or at the very least, 
maybe it is a tie. It just doesn't clearly favor Ithaca. I think that's another one there where you have North Central as the number one ranked team in a region. And Ithaca, I believe, is the third ranked team in region one. Not number one. That was Susquehanna. But the, the third ranked team in region two. Uh, it, that go all goes back to uh, the region two committee getting overruled at the national committee level, which is a whole other ball of wax. If you are new to this and don't really understand what we're talking about, we are down to using the shorthand because in podcast number 318 and in podcast number 319, we spent a good amount of time explaining how all this works. Feel free to go back and listen to those. Our other hosts for the next round, unsurprising, Wartburg hosting Aurora, North Central hosting Ithaca, and Mary Harden Baylor hosting Bethel. Somewhat less dramatic, yes. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. Time for game balls, and I'm going to give my game ball to Parker Rochford. We'll talk about uh, a little more later about the performance of the Warburg defense when the Warburg offense was hobbled, but yeah, no, no, I, I never watched that show. That thing ran from 1974 to 1980. I don't recognize that theme song at all. I was watching like Woody Woodpecker. Anyway, Rochford intercepted a pass from St. John's Aaron Severson inside the 10 as the Johnnies were driving to try to tie the game or take the lead late in the second quarter with Wartburg up 9-6. And he returned it out to the 32-yard line where the Knights were able to go the rest of the way, score with 31 seconds left in the half to go up 16-6. But even more important, really, I think, is his play in the third quarter. This is on the opening drive. Severson is sacked on the second play, which is a first down at his own 21 and the Johnnies end up fourth and four. The punt snap was, uh, let's say, not ideal. Rochford ends up just ripping the ball out of the puncher's hands, running it in the final 12 yards for a touchdown to put Wartburg up 23-6. to Parker Rochford ended up with seven tackles on the day, as well as the interception, the forced fumble, the fumble recovery, and the touchdown in the 23-20 to win, and that's why he gets my game ball. Not just because I can put it in a file somewhere. No, the podcast is pretty serialized, but did you have any idea that you would be producing Podcast 322 with your Rochford Files reference in Podcast 321? I wasn't sure that the Rochford Files reference landed at all. I mean, it took you like 90 seconds to get it, but people did mention it over the course of the week. So when Parker Rochford uh, has the opportunity to come back up and the Warburg defense played outstanding, we're going to talk more about that as we go on. Yeah, absolutely going to make that reference again. You know, Pat, it seems like every week Bethel has a new offensive star, and this week the standout player in the Royals' 30-13 to win at Linfield was sophomore wide receiver Joey Kidder. Kidder isn't a new star per se. He had a 16-catch game earlier this season, but against Linfield, it was his time to shine. Kidder caught just five passes on the day, but three went for touchdowns. The third and final score for Kidder saw him slip through a Linfield tackle, race up the sideline 45 yards early in the fourth quarter, for the game's final and decisive points. Watching Jaron Rosti and Kidder reminds me a lot of Kyle King and Brandon Jordan. Rosti often just kind of floats the ball up to Kidder, who's 6'3". Kidder usually wins those jump balls. He won a couple of them on Saturday, and for his three-touchdown performance, Joey Kidder gets my game ball. Guy is real athletic. He's got a lot of speed. Started to make a name for himself a little bit last year, and now this year. I mean, this is about... 
This isn't as big a stage as Bethel has been on. It's getting there. Bethel's been to the semifinals a couple of times, but this is a uh, this is a good time to have some breakout type games. So Wartburg advanced, and so did Aurora. They beat Alma 48-26. to And let's start with the Wartburg-St. John's game, a game in which Wartburg got some turnovers and some key defensive stops in the first half. They go up 23-6 just into the third quarter. They hang on for dear life down the stretch. After starting quarterback Niall McLaughlin left with a hobbled left ankle late in the third quarter, it was really on the defense to take it home from there, and they knew this. You'll hear first in this clip from linebacker Nate Link, then linebacker Owen Grover, and then Warburg coach Chris Winter as they spoke after the game. The offense has been in that situation the last few weeks um, with Co. They had a seven-minute drive to finish the game, um, and last week just finishing the game, just running the ball, getting first down. So it was kind of our turn to, to take that task and finish the game. Um, we knew in that situation um, with Nile down that um, we needed kind of a boost, and I think our defense did a really good job of just just not getting too worked up, doing our job, staying calm, and just every 111th of the defense just kind of made plays. Absolutely, same thing, you know, you know, just competing for our offense, trying to get those guys the ball back at the end, knowing that, you know, Hunter Clawson and those guys have up the boys up front, the O-line, have the ability to ground out those, ground out those yards at the end um, and get the ball back in their hands so that they can run that clock out and, and get the victory. Yeah, and I can add to that for a second, too. I mean, just want to mention, so a couple things. One, I, this group, the reason we were able to do what we've been able to do the last few weeks in terms of the offense and defense stepping up is because it has been a one day at a time, one play at a time mentality. That's what was set as the standard from the start by our seniors, and everyone's bought into that. And so I think that, that's really what has come along here late in these games for us to be able to pull them off. And I also want to mention Antonio Santion, um, you know, this guy who's senior captain for his 50-year guy, has been injured after the Simpson game. Owen's been playing Mike for him. Uh, Preston Rochford gets injured. Um, Owen bumps back out to Will and Antonio out there on about one and a half legs playing Mike and uh, comes up with the pick to seal the game. I mean, I couldn't be more proud of that kid. Like I said, come back for a fifth year and uh, geez, what a play. What a play for him. I mean, Greg, there was a 15 minute span of the game, you know, basically an entire quarter where Warburg basically could do nothing on offense. Like they got bailed out by a roughing the punter call. And that just allowed them to extend a possession for another series run a couple minutes off the clock, big defensive plays in terms of interceptions, uh, the final interception, as uh, Coach Winter mentioned there, by a guy who had been out of the lineup for a while. I think the perception as you watch this game is that there's probably just too much time for the Warper defense to be able to do it all by themselves. And they got a couple of plays, right? You know, as things got uh, really down and dirty Near the end of it, Carter Markham gets a uh, fade up the left sideline that goes for 20-plus yards. They get out of the shadow of their own goalpost. And then later, when after forcing another fourth down stop, they get the ball back. Hunter Clawson rips off a big run. Carter Markham had a big run earlier in the fourth quarter. It's like they had maybe just like three or four plays in that last 20 minutes that were positives, big positives for them offensively, and that was just that was enough. It was that play with Carter Markham just slinging it up the sideline out of the end zone. I thought for sure that Wartburg was just going to pound Hunter Clawson up the middle three times, punt that thing away and put it back on the defense. Really, really big defensive day in that fourth quarter, particularly holding on to that three point lead for dear life. They just kept making play after play. And, you know, we've seen it out of the Wartburg defense all season. They're just really solid. Their secondary is fantastic. 
And St. John's did all they could, but Wartburg there, four interceptions of Aaron Severson on the day, just a really, really big-time performance out of that Wartburg defense. Earlier in the game, I'm watching, bouncing around between a few different games, and I look over, and St. John's is inside the five-yard line, and I look over to another game, and I come back. It seemed like 20 minutes later, St. John's is still inside the five-yard line. They must have run. I don't know how many plays they ran inside the five right there, Pat, but four four downs inside the three, three from the one, and they do not score another big stop by the Wartburg defense. St. John's really just trying to muscle it in there, and Wartburg won that battle. Yeah, they do not have the muscle in the backfield if uh, Henry Trost is not available, which he was not on Saturday. That series definitely did take a long time. Nick Van Erp, the wide receiver for St. John's who got the ball on a handoff, just got clocked by a Wartburg defender. Uh, It sounded like dislocated elbow. Obviously, he did not return. That took a little while to clear. But they go four downs in that spot and never once throw the ball to the guy who honestly is probably going to be the first team, D3Football.com, All-America tight end, Alex Larson. That was a little baffling. Also, yeah, one snap from the three, three of them then from the one, and they're not able to get the ball in the end zone. And right there, every single time, it is amazing individual effort, solo tackles by Warburg defensive lineman up front. Um, it's not part of the clip that we used, but Nate Link talks in the postgame news conference about the linebackers and the safeties being back there ready to help in that situation and not being needed on that entire little series there inside the one. That's the kind of thing that should really open people's eyes to how good this Wartburg team is and their opponent, not just next week, but if they continue to advance, like getting that kind of play out of your defensive line is, you know, that's a hallmark of teams that go really, really far in the division three football tournament. So obviously where I was at in the St. John's press box, there was a lot of interest in the Alma Aurora game And, you know, similarly to what you described, I pop in and out because, you know, other things are going on. And all of a sudden it went from, you know, 14 to six to 34 to six, practically in a blink of an eye. Yeah. Up in Alma, Michigan, Aurora and Alma played to a virtual stalemate through the game's first 20 minutes. It was seven to six at that point. But then in the last 10 minutes of the first half, Aurora just went off. The Spartans scored touchdowns on their last four drives of the first half. And they ran away and hid from the Scots. Aurora, they went into the break up with a uh, 34 to 6 lead. Then they scored first in the second half. They expanded that lead to 41 to 6. And then they just coasted from there. They ended up winning by a final score of 48 to 26. Aurora's passing game, they get a lot of the spotlight in this Don Beebe offense. And Josh Swanson, he was really good again this week 22 to 37, 284 yards, four touchdowns. But Aurora rushed for nearly 300 yards in this game, Pat, highlighted by Jaquay Creighton's 225 yards on 38 carries. Real workhorse uh, for them. Part of what makes Aurora so difficult is this complimentary running game. Really difficult to stop everything that the Spartans are throwing at you. And that dynamism is what has Aurora in the national quarterfinals for the first time in their program's history. We will talk about the upcoming matchup between Aurora and Wartburg coming up later on in this podcast. Moving on to the bottom left bracket, where it was a familiar story out of Alliance, Ohio. 
Here it's 31-0 and Mountain Union driving again. A pump and a throw at the goal line and a catch and another Mountain Union touchdown in the hands of Wayne Ruby. Stop me if you've heard this one before. <laughs> Number 26 for Ruby. Whoa. Yes, we have heard this before. Jeff Shreve, Harry Paytas, and uh, we've talked about it too as uh, Wayne Ruby's amazing season continues. So does Mount Unions as they beat Utica by the score of 45-7. to You know, Greg, I said previously that I thought Utica could score on Mount. I just thought it might come before garbage time. You know, it wasn't without trying, Pat. Utica's Gallardi semifinalist wide receiver, Nate Palmer, he had a game-high nine receptions, but Utica only gained 43 yards on those nine receptions and Palmer was targeted 17 times. They tried to get their ball to their big playmaker. Mount Union was ready for it. Yeah, they definitely were. I was watching just the highlight package, but uh, they got him the ball on some shovel passes that went absolutely nowhere. Sometimes less than nowhere, shovel pass for a loss of like four yards. They read those plays in particular really well. Year after year, we see teams get their first crack at Mount Union in the first or second round of the tournament, and it almost always ends up this way. The Purple Raiders, they play at a different speed than most of your home conference competition. They don't ever beat themselves. And if you take two quarters to catch up to the level that they're playing at, it's too late. And, you know, with that said, I I come not to bury Utica, but to praise them. This has been an historic season for the Pioneers. They reached program highs and wins. They qualified for the postseason for the first time. They won their first playoff game. There's nothing at all to hang heads about at Utica. The other game in this bracket was one of the day's great games, and joining us to talk about it is Gordon Mann. Gordon, uh, welcome back to the podcast. It's probably been a while, uh, and a, a great win for Delaware Valley on Saturday against Randolph-Macon. Yeah, really a, a thrilling game for the Aggies. They fell behind. Uh, by 14 in the third quarter. It was the first time they had trailed all year. Um, got a big play right before the end of the third quarter to set up a, a quick touchdown. Uh, Randolph-Macon fumbled on their next possession, but Delaware Valley couldn't advance the ball, and then the Aggies got some stops and got some scores. Uh, very exciting for Delaware Valley. Uh, you know, very exciting for the team to get the win. They've had a lot of wins, obviously, over the years. Everybody at this point in the tournament has. But these are the ones that you remember as a program. Um, you know, they they stick with you longer than fifty-one to nothing over Mr. Accordia on a you know random Saturday. But win or lose, I mean, the games that that I know the players and the coaches remember uh, are the the close losses, whether it was to Brockport in the semifinals or you know Rowan several years ago. These are the ones you remember, and um, really, it, it, you have to tip your cap to Randolph Macon, who was playing without starting safety, one of their linebackers, and their starting quarterback. Yeah. Uh, and they just are a big, well-coached team who plays really, really hard. Uh, it was a fun game to cover. Gordon, on your on your broadcast, you mentioned that this was the first time in a long time that Delaware Valley had been in a close game. Uh, I think something yeah. like since 2019, since they've been in a game decided by less than 10 points. Um, how, how was that? feel like in the in the stadium for everybody there and the players to to be in a close game like that you know they the the the, the coach uh the coaching staff and the players are usually pretty deadpan about this there was a, a moment where the aggies were down by i think they were down seven and uh michael and anthony nobile's father uh who was extremely uh uh outgoing uh, started a he has this thing where he starts a whose house our house chant and they were down and they were losing so that's so 
um, the, the, the stand, the fans were into it. Um, you know, I think they were excited and, and enjoying the game. Uh, the team did not really, I mean, did not seem to panic. They did not go away from what they did. Uh, and in fact, it was their ability to rush the quarterback in the fourth quarter. That was the difference. They were able to rush the quarterback in the first quarter and keep Randolph making off the scoreboard. I don't know what happened in between quarters one and four, but it was in the fourth quarter when when Aladdinoff in particular started to get to the quarterback and, and then the, no, the Nobile twins um, that Randolph Waken went from moving the ball pretty quickly to a, a series of three and outs. Gordon, we've talked a little bit this season on this podcast about you know the evolution of the DelVal offense from you know in the past been a very defensive first uh, program, shall we say yeah. that? Maybe that's the kind way to say that. But yeah. uh, you know, Louis Berrios the fourth starting quarterback for the Aggies this year, offense says uh, offense has a place at DelVal. Tell us a little bit about him and a little bit about that. Yeah, Berrios. So Berrios is a transfer from Division Two Pace. He came in. He had a real slow start to the season. Um, and then about midway through the fourth game of the year against Misericordia, who I know is is not a weather vane in, in terms of program strength, but he started hitting his receivers in stride. Um, Delaware Valley has always had very quick receivers, uh, not quite at the level of athleticism of the old Wesley teams, but it's very similar. Guys who are very short um, run very quickly. They get the ball to them out in the flats in a lot of different ways, end arounds and sweeps. You know, the, the, the programs in this part of the country, when they've been really good, Rowan, Wesley, have always widened They've always done that to get the ball to these little guys out in the flat. And Berrios um, has, can throw the ball. He's the one consistent thing about Delaware Valley quarterbacks over the last, I don't even know, 16 years is they all can run the ball. Uh, the difference is can they throw it? At, uh, some of them very well, some of them almost not at all. Uh, Barrios has figured out that he can throw the ball a little bit and they need that um, because, you know, their their rushing statistics are good, um, but they've had a number of games where they've just struggled to move the ball on the ground against quality opponents. And if you take out Jay White's 79 yard touchdown run yesterday, their number the rushing numbers against Randolph Macon were not fantastic. So they're going to need to they need to throw the ball. Um, it's exciting for Del Val, their top their top quarterback, their top tailback. Uh, their receivers will all come back. They're all underclassmen. It's been a while since Delaware Valley's had um, had a, a, an, an offense which you look at and you go, wow, this thing really has some upside to it. You mentioned the, uh, the sort of makeup that reminds you a little bit of Wesley teams. And I'm curious, Gordon, you have guys like Barrios and the Nobile brothers and Flash Morgan. Uh, there's some really big play potential on offense is this a team that you think is a little bit different that has the has the athletes to to go with Mount Union next week? You know, I I I, I honestly I don't know. Um, you know, I will say that it is uh, the strengths that Delaware Valley has had in the past on defense. You know, Nobile, uh, Michael Nobile, Yusuf Aladinoff, Anthony Nobile. Um, that's this is the best front line they've ever had. Uh, you know, these are the these are three of the best defenders they've ever had. Kyle Gesswin was really good. Um, you know, I, I think Mike Nobile is better and faster. So we'll see. I'm not sure. I've seen we were talking about this before we got on. I've seen a lot of games at Mount Union where the size and the strength and the depth. Um, it's very hard to beat a team like that with with quickness to outquick them um, because they're also very fast and very strong. The thing that gives you hope for for Delaware Valley is 
a couple of years ago with an offense that I believe was was not as good as this one or did not have as much potential to score as this one did, went to North Central and was down by seven in the fourth quarter uh, with a lot of these same guys on defense. And, and you know, uh, Yusuf Aladinoff talked about it in the post-game press conference yesterday. Uh, Mike and Anthony Nobile have talked about it in the past. Blaine Netterman has talked about it in the past. They remember that game. And so at least when they've been playing teams at that level, the last taste in their mouth was not, you know, 66 to nothing. Um, and and uh, it seems like a lifetime ago because it was pre-COVID and before a season was wiped out, guys came back for their fifth season. Uh, but those guys in particular, it's it's still the same. And, yeah, I, I think this team has a bigger capability for big plays than that one did, and largely it's because of, of Barrios. Um, again, that that team had Dan Allen. He was an All American wide receiver. I think this team has a has has more weapons around Barrios uh, than the than the 2019 team did. Last question, and we'll let you go. We've already talked about this on this podcast, but what was your perception of how surprised people were uh, at Delaware Valley to be hosting this game on Saturday? I, I'm very very surprised. Um, you know, it, we were we were talking. I talked with a number of of, uh, of ad- administrators, uh, with the student workers who were you know making plans to go out and see the College Football Hall of Fame, and and talking to somebody about what a unique place Alliance is as a town for a Division three football game. Um, it's it's a great thrill. You know the co- the coaching staff they're going to put their head down. I know they're already looking at film. The players aren't going to, you know, they're going to get the same response out of them that you would uh, any other opponent any of the other week. But it's a real thrill for the program. It's a real thrill for the program to be able to host one of these titans of Division Three, a Mary Harden Baylor, Whitewater, North Central, Mount Union, um, to get a chance to, to welcome them in. And, and, you know, I know some Mount Union fans are probably disappointed. I hope they're able to come in and, you know, uh, uh, Maybe, maybe I hope they don't enjoy about three hours on Saturday afternoon a whole lot. Uh, but I hope they're able to enjoy the rest of the trip. It's it's a it's a beautiful area. Come into town, run the Rocky Steps, get a cheese steak, go see the Liberty Bell. Um, you know, it's a historic part of the country. Uh, it's a fun part of the country, and and I and I I hope that we uh, I hope we have a good game on Saturday for, as as a Del Val guy for the last eighteen years or whatever it's been now. It's just a thrill for the program to be able to host one of these one of these teams at this point in the tournament. Gordon Mann, large time proprietor of D3Hoops.com, also <laughs> broadcaster for Delaware Valley Football. Thanks for uh, joining us. My pleasure, guys. We're going to move up to the top right where Carnegie Mellon finally made their trip to Naperville to play top-ranked North Central. And the Tartans pressed North Central in a way that I don't think anybody has this season, Wheaton included. CMU scored first in this game on a 47-yard Chris Hughes touchdown reception from Ben Mills. That was about all of the meaningful offense in this game from Carnegie Mellon, however, as the Cardinals scored the game's final 28 points to advance with a nervy 28-7 win. Ethan Greenfield was limited to just 22 rushing yards on 11 carries in the first half of this game. Greenfield eventually broke off a 65-yard rush in the second half, but he was held largely in check by the Tartans. Luke Lannon sealed the game with his own 75-yard touchdown run in the fourth quarter. Yeah, just a, a speedy sprint up the right-hand sideline. Here's Coach Brad Spencer's take on this game. Obviously pleased with the win. Uh, I mean, you just want to get out of these 
games with victories and keep moving on. Uh, certainly we'll look at the film tonight and tomorrow and, and find places that we need to be better for next week. Um, thought the defense played lights out again. Um, you know, they're, they're just, they're playing hot right now. Uh, that uh, takeaway was huge. Uh, coming into the game, we knew that uh, Carnegie Mellon, they, they're winning team football games by taking the football away. Uh, so we knew we needed to hold on to the football, which we did. Uh, Luke was efficient in the pass game again, and, and obviously his legs were uh, a key to our victory. Um, but just a good team win. Uh, it's, it's good to be challenged like this, uh, knowing that we're going to be challenged again. Um, so it was great to see the guys just you know, calm the ship, ride the waves, and, and bring the ship in. That's kind of what we talked about was we know there's going to be ups and downs. Uh, they did a great job early in the game scripting and throwing some new things at us that we hadn't seen uh, on film. And, you know, our defense uh, settled down and was able to adjust to those things. And, you know, obviously you can see with how well they played, uh, some great adjustments by Coach Durking and his staff. And I thought Coach Studeman and the offensive staff did a really nice job as well in the second half, making some adjustments, finding ways to get our playmakers into space when we needed some plays. Uh, we certainly left points on the board, I think. Um, I don't think any, anybody on our team's going to disagree with that. But uh, again, it's a really good football team that we played. Knew it coming in. Uh, knew that they were really strong on defense. And they do a great job taking the football away. And they're aggressive. They tackle. They blitz. Uh, we knew all those things. And at the end of the day, our guys just did a great job playing for each other and uh, loving each other and blocking and tackling. And that's, that's what we talk about. That's what we practice every single week is you know, making sure that we're putting our best foot forward to block, to tackle, play for each other, uh, and control the football, control time of possession. And at the end of the day, we're able to do that. You know, Pat, North Central has posted eye-popping numbers offensively all year, but their defense has been every bit as good, and they needed to be in this game. The Cardinal defensive line is excellent. Tyler Rich forced two fumbles from quarterback sacks in this game, both of them recovered by linemate Dan Lester. Pat, are there any concerns here with North Central's pass game? They were able to wear down Carnegie Mellon and eventually get that run game going, but are there teams left here that have the ability to force North Central to throw? I think there's probably some questions or some doubts about the quality of the pass game. And Luke Lanin, he's just not going to be Brock Rudder. That's not his strength. His strength is not going to be throwing the ball and finding guys deep downfield, right? I think there is a concern if someone can force them to throw the ball a little bit more. I think there's still teams in this uh, bracket who stop the run, right? Uh, I think that uh, Warburg has an opportunity to do so if that's a matchup that ends up happening. Mary Harden Baylor probably has an opportunity to do that. Mount Union probably has an opportunity to do that. Moving over to the other pair in this quadrant, Ithaca took Springfield's best punch and then stormed back to defeat the Pride 31 to 20. Springfield opened this game with a pick six by DJ Brown. Springfield then added a field goal on their first offensive possession to put the Bombers in an early 10 to 0 hole. And that's when AJ Wingfield and the Ithaca offense went to work. Ithaca scores touchdowns on three of their next four possessions. They take a 21 to 13 lead that they would not relinquish. Springfield did get a Joseph Canizaro touchdown run at the end of the half, but that would conclude Springfield scoring for the afternoon. The Bombers defense shut Springfield out in the second half. They forced three turnovers over the last 30 minutes. Jalen Leonard Osborne had two touchdown grabs for Ithaca in the win. Canizaro and Armando Torres each rushed for over 100 yards for Springfield. Pat, this is a senior-laden Ithaca team. They've got over 40 seniors and grad students, and you have to think that that maturity helped them stay even after a disastrous opening five minutes. 
Yeah, Greg, I was asked this question in a conversation earlier on Sunday. Did Springfield have a real shot here? Is that what we take away from this? I think they did have a shot, but when Ithaca was able to adjust to that rush game and start forcing fumbles, I think that was that. Really difficult for Springfield to get behind by 10 points or so and come back. It's just not the offense that they run that allows them to get back into it. I know in round one, we saw them get out to a two-score lead against Endicott, and it felt like a five-score lead. It works the other way for Springfield when they fall behind, right? Yeah, absolutely. And on to the bottom right corner of this bracket, and we start by going back to the hotline and bringing in guest Frank Rossi of In the Huddle. Frank, who was in San Antonio for the first time on Saturday to see and cover the Trinity Mary Harden Baylor game. Uh, Frank, thanks for joining us. And uh, tell us a little bit about what you saw in this amazing game. Saw a lot of wind in the first half, and Mary Harden Baylor uh, storming out to 10 0 lead. And then I saw finally somewhere in that third quarter, Trinity snapped out of it and decided to, hey, Let's get back to our game plan the way we need to play this game and almost getting back all the way, uh, just falling a little bit short 24-17, and it was an incredible game. So let's talk a little bit more about it. Copy editor Keith McMillan in the back of my brain is saying, did you see the wind or did you see the results of the wind? And then that's just fine. Yeah, I was wondering, especially after the, you know, as this game started and as this game progressed, how similar it was to the meeting in the previous year. And then, you know, whether... You know, the thoughts that we had last week about did Mary Harden Baylor actually flip the switch against Huntington or is Huntington just not good enough to stop them? Um, and I, I wonder if we got that answer on Saturday. I don't know. Uh, I think in some ways Mary Harden Baylor did flick certain switches. Uh, their offense was humming along fine in the first half. Again, a little bit of wind uh, might have knocked away a couple of their throwing opportunities. And in the second half, it, it was a little chaotic what they were deciding to do offensively. They they were still passing the ball. It's going through my uh, stuff this morning and uh, looking at it again because I was even beginning, beginning to question what what went different about their offense in the second half. They were still throwing the ball. Cal King was still you know back in the pocket a little bit here and there. But I it just seemed like the Trinity defense was able to step up a little bit better to thwart the scoring opportunities after that second touchdown in the third quarter by Mary Harden Baylor. So I, I don't know 100% what's going on. I, I got to give some credit to that defense. The defense is definitely stepping up when they need to at the very least. And so a crew defense that graduated a lot of people off is starting to come back around right now. Frank, I want to ask a little bit about Brandon Jordan. He gets he gets quiet for big stretches of the season, and then in big-time games, he, he tends to show up. He had... Um, you know, he had some really good catches. He had a nice catch and run that really sealed the game for UMHB. He also uh, blocked on a big uh, screen for touchdown. Uh, tell us a little bit about Brandon Jordan's game in the second round. Yeah, that Jamal Hamilton touchdown that he basically threw number three into the middle of next week uh, on that block was something incredible. And I think that really shows you the utility of Brandon Jordan. And I asked him in the post game about just you know being the guy that takes the losses or the near losses the most personally out there uh, it's well chronicled now that you know he was they weren't sure if he was coming back this year ultimately and he did and he's been taking this one with the kind of the chip on the shoulder approach uh, if they're you know going to get left out or you know ejected from a playoff scenario and you can see it out there you can see him blocking like i've never seen him block before honestly and he's still catching the balls. He, he's catching a lot more balls 
I would say, uh, you know, sideline uh, type plays and whatnot that are important for possession reasons. He's just been much more utility this season. And because they're double covering him a little bit better, he needs to be utility and he's doing it well. I saw that UMHB struggled a little bit to run the ball. Looked like they had some success early, then a little bit, uh, you know, struggled later on in the game, Frank. You know, the big weapons for UMHB offensively, you got King, Miller, Jordan. Those are all passing options, but they're championship teams. They can run the ball. Are you seeing, was that UMHB struggle to run? Was that credit to Trinity, or is that something a little bit different? Maybe a piece missing from UMHB's offense that we've seen from their championship teams. I'll tell you this much. I did not realize until Harris Good told us in the post game just how injured the Trinity defensive line has been over the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Essentially, they've had a complete, completely different setup up front in every game the last few weeks, especially because of injuries. And Harris Good was even twice in that game he had to come out because he was just in such a painful situation. But he kept going back out there. Credit to him because he had some important tackles down the stretch. I think it is really Trinity has a very good defensive line and a very good backup set of uh, defenders on that line as well that were able to get in there, had a little bit of experience for the last couple of weeks and continue doing what they were doing. I, I don't think it's any knock on UMHB, although they did have an offensive lineman go down with injury early that I don't believe returned. And so that might have been part of the reason that they struggled a little bit more with the run in the second half. But give credit where credit's due. The defensive line of Trinity is pretty super. You've been on the sidelines for a lot of Mary Harden Baylor games over the course of the last several years. What's the demeanor like? What did you observe like in that capacity on Saturday? Business as usual. I would say uh, it, it, there was no panic at any point during that comeback. You could see I was across the field for that part during the first half. It was just, you know, operate the well-oiled machine and don't try to do anything that's going to make it misoperate for any reason. They are a team that has a new head coach that hasn't changed all that much in terms of the mentality of how they go toward this business of being in the playoffs. And, you know, Larry Harmon, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's kind of his mentality just overall out there, and it's working, obviously. Frank, appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us, and uh, safe travels wherever you're headed next. Thank you, sir. Same to you. And then the last matchup in this bracket, actually the last matchup on Saturday, starts with a bit of a travelogue saga for Bethel just to get out to McMinnville, Oregon. So this is one of those distant trips, the ones that are more than... And that the NCAA pays for a flight for, in this case, a charter flight to get you from Minneapolis to Portland, Oregon, and then, uh, you know, a bus to McMinnville. But Bethel scheduled to leave at uh, six o'clock or so local time on Thursday afternoon. Instead, doesn't get out until a quarter to one in the morning because a pilot was unwell. They ended up not getting to McMinnville until like three or four o'clock in the morning. Turned out. I don't know that we saw any ill effects whatsoever as Bethel played a pretty good first half and then a lights out second half in defeating Linfield 30 to 13 on Saturday. Yeah. I think a lot of this game had to do with execution in the red zone. Um, Linfield opens the, opens the game. They go right down, they get a field goal. Bethel on their first possession, right down the field, they score a touchdown Linfield back the other way. 
gets stopped in the red zone again, another field goal. Bethel goes the other way on their second possession, scores a touchdown. No punts, no real defense to speak of in the first four possessions, but Linfield has a 14 to six lead. And that was really the difference in the game. Just the execution in the red zone. Bethel was good. They finished their drives off with touchdowns. Linfield did not. They got those two field goals on their first two possessions. They got a a red zone touchdown. They ran an end around pass option with Joel Valadez. Yeah. Got a wide open receiver on, on a little trick play there. And then in the second half, a couple of red zone opportunities for Linfield and with Anthony Hockett interceptions and the game gets away from Linfield in the second half there. Bethel rolls on to a 30 to 13 win. Jaron Rosti on the afternoon, 19 to 24 passing 214 yards and three touchdowns, just six carries for 24 yards. One of them, of course, is a, a touchdown run, but they're not using him nearly as much for that right now. No, and what a luxury it's been for Steve Johnson to not have to call Jaron Rosti's number. They've got two games against top 15 opponents that they've won on the road, and they haven't really needed to put Rosti in a lot of harm to get it done. They're getting really good running out of David Gibley. Bryce Kunkel's doing Bryce Kunkel things, and the offensive line is protecting Rosti, and they they are not needing him to pick up those yards uh, with his legs and expose himself to to contact. I, I think he's looked better this week than he did last week. And last week he looked better than he did against St. John's in the in the Mayak championship game. Coming up this week against Mary Harden Baylor, I think they'll they'll need the full Rosti. That's not my stat. Also not gonna be my stat. Not my stat. But that may be the most incredible stat. All those things said previously are not my stat, and my stat shall instead be something I have not as of yet said, such as this. Yes, that's the number of penalties Bethel had called against it uh, on Saturday in its win at Linfield. What is the sound of one hand clapping or, or no flags being thrown? Yes, zero penalties for the Royals. This isn't anything new, though, really. Bethel has had only 39 penalties called against it all season. That's just 3.25 per game through 12 games. That will be the third fewest per game tied with Randolph-Macon when the NCAA next updates those Division Three stat leaders. So yeah, maybe in every game there's a flag or two missed, right? And Maybe I even saw one as I was watching that game on Saturday, but the trend is there, it's consistent, and it's strong. So to add to the lack of penalizable mistakes being made, we can add zero turnovers, just the one sack on the day, and all of this is as Greg said a moment ago with a freshman in Ghibli running the ball and a multi-tooled quarterback like Jaron Rossi being asked to keep one of those tools in the shed, in his belt, wherever you keep tools. I keep them in a metal box in the garage. Anyway, that's my stat of the week. I was inspired a bit by Keith McMillan's tweet ranking the final eight teams, and I thought it would be interesting to rank them based on who they beat. And I measured this, Pat, by aggregating the number of top 25 pull points that the teams, that the final eight teams have beaten. Do we get all that? At the, top of the, at the top of the list is Wartburg, which should be no surprise. The Knights have beaten two top 10 teams so far in this tournament. UW Lacrosse and St. John's, they combined for 999 pull points. Second on that list is Bethel. They have defeated teams that combined for 808 pull points. Going down to the bottom two on the list are Mount Union, 
whose opponents had just 12 pole points entering the tournament, and Ithaca, the Bombers, they're the only team remaining that have not faced a team in this tournament that received any pole points through the first two rounds. Those, of course, are not indicative of future performance, but interesting nonetheless. Ithaca's degree of difficulty, that gets cranked way up as they go and play number one North Central this weekend. 999 pole points for Warburg opponent. So let's look ahead at those games next week, right? We've got uh, Aurora at Warburg. We've got Mountain Union at Delaware Valley, Ithaca at North Central, Bethel at Mary Harden Baylor. Aurora, with its multifaceted offense, uh, is going to be, I think, sorely needed against Warburg. And I say this too having watched Niall McLaughlin just not able to put any weight on his left ankle whatsoever on his way off the field in the third quarter as the Warburg starting quarterback. That has to be considered, has to be weight a factor as well right now. It does. Warburg's offense really looked discombobulated there for a little bit when they changed quarterbacks. Carter Markham did get a couple of first downs going late in the fourth quarter after he settled into the game a little bit. If it is going to be Carter Markham this week, little bit different look than you're going to get from Niall McLaughlin. Aurora, they come in looking pretty healthy. And we'll see if Warburg Knight defense can find a way to deal with uh, Don Beebe's offense, which is running on all cylinders right now. You get a whole week of practice and a game plan actually designed for Carter Markham. Here's a little bit about that as Chris Winter talked about it after the game. Carter's got a specific skill set, and so obviously when you're when you're putting together a game plan for Niall McLaughlin, it probably looks a little bit different than if you were going to game plan for Carter Markham all week. And so I think that was also a little bit of that transition of, okay, what are the things that we want to be able to run with Carter? Put him in some situations where he can use his strengths, where he can, he can really be confident when you're in, in a three-point ball game and they're like, hey, you're up, buddy, let's go. You know, that's a, that's a big challenge for a young kid. And so I think Coach Wheeler did an awesome job of, like I said, it took a couple series, but then finding a little bit of things that he could do. I think it said a lot about him. I don't know, you know, you guys saw it. Zone read player, he pulls around the edge, the way he finished off that run. I think that was kind of a little bit of a, at that point in the game, we needed that kind of spark. You know, he made that nice throw on the sideline before that too. So, yeah, he's, he's just the type of kid that is, he's a gamer. He, he won the state title as a, as a senior in, in high school at uh, North Scott High School. And uh, so, you know, he's been around winning football, knows what it takes. It's just going to take a little bit for him to, you know, get into the rhythm there when you get in that type of game that late. Quarterfinal at Walston Hoover Stadium for the first time in that program's history. You know, they've played in the quarterfinals multiple times previously. Famously, in Lance Leipold's final year, they go down to Whitewater and take Whitewater to the wire. In this case, they have an opportunity to have this contest at home. They do. That was a very, very good Wartburg team. Nearly, nearly took out Whitewater. I believe that was a Matt Sasha quarterbacked Wartburg team. Matt Sasha, same high school as Niall McLaughlin, same high school as Carter Markham. I say this too about Wartburg fans is, you know, in multiple sports, wrestling, women's basketball, football, these folks show up. They were definitely there on Saturday in Collegeville, they will be loud for a home game. Moving on to Mountain Union at Delaware Valley. We've talked about this a little bit already with Gordon Mann. You know, I think there's certainly defensive opportunities up front for the guys that Gordon talked about, both Nobiles, Yusuf Aladinov, and then in the secondary, guys like Blaine Netterman to make things really difficult for Braxton Plunk. 
Maybe this is one of the best defensive fronts that Mountain Union will have faced this season. So it might keep the scoring down. You know, I'm going to say this. I don't know how many points that uh, Delaware Valley ends up putting on the board because although that uh, offense is definitely improved, that's a bit of a bigger struggle to go from even playing Randolph-Macon, who's been pretty good this season, to then going playing Mountain Union. That is a step of about two or three orders of magnitude up the uh, up the proverbial ladder. I think Delaware Valley has some athletes that can go toe-to-toe with, with Mountain Union. We talked about it a little bit with Gordon Mann earlier. I think really for Delaware Valley to stay in this game and have a chance, they've got to be really focused and really disciplined, which is not always their thing. They're so much better than, than the teams they play in the MAC. They get away with a lot of personal fouls. They get away with sloppy with a sloppy turnover here and there. You can't do that against Mountain Union. They will they will not let you get away with that. So Delaware Valley is going to have to play you know one of their their most disciplined games that they've played in a long long time. But it's there. I think they have the guys to compete. I think Gordon was spot on recalling their experience in 2019 with North Central. I think that's a big deal. This is not their first exposure to a tippy top level team. Chances are there for Delaware Valley. Not the first quarterfinal, but the first time that they get to host one. So maybe that helps a little bit. On the other side, you know, maybe you get a a, a cheesed off Mount Union coming in, which is not the Mount Union you want coming in. But no. um, it'll be an interesting game, and I think we'll see pretty quickly which way that's going to go. A cheesed off Mount Union team should head to Wisconsin instead, right? Why would you come to the Philadelphia area? Oh, right, for cheesesteak. Got it. Just took me a second to get all the way there. Ithaca at North Central, another year where the champion of the Liberty League comes to Chicagoland to play North Central. Carnegie Mellon obviously was uh, very skilled, very talented defensively, and that showed quite a bit against the Cardinals on Saturday. I think back to Ithaca in Cortica Jug, you know, being able to take receivers away from Zach Boys, the Cortland quarterback, but not being able to contain him in the pocket. Uh, Luke Lanen is much better than Zach Boyce. He's not as good a passer, but he is so much a better runner that it's not even close. Yeah, we saw Luke Lanen really unhitch the wagon on that 75-yard touchdown run. Uh, he is very, very fast if he breaks the pocket. We'll see if if they'll have the same success defending the run with that big offensive line and Ethan Greenfield and Terrence Hill coming at you. We'll see if they can have the same success that Carnegie Mellon had. On the other side, we'll see if they'll be able to deal with that Cardinal defensive line. Tyler Rich, Dan Lester, really terrorizing quarterbacks in this tournament and really all year. Um, this is going to be a big challenge for Ithaca. But, I mean, man, Ithaca's on on a roll. Michael Turper undefeated as a head coach. And then our final quarterfinal is this uh, Bethel game at Mary Harden-Baylor. You know, Greg, when we have gotten to this point in the past, I have generally looked at Bethel and thought they are not fast enough to keep up at this level. They've not been fast enough in semifinal games against Mountain Union. Uh, They've struggled in these games, but I don't any longer really have that impression. I think this is two teams that can go really toe-to-toe with each other. I think so. And we saw Mary Harden Baylor struggle to put two really good halves together. Trinity really picked up their game in the second half, but you know, that felt like a game that UMHB was going to run away with and win, you know, 40 to seven or something like that. And it just didn't materialize. 
they'll need two really good halves to beat Bethel because, as you mentioned, Bethel is not a team that makes a ton of mistakes. They are not going to beat themselves. And, man, they are playing so confident right now. Like Everything that they're doing is working. It looks easy. They're never in a rush. They're never out of place. Right. They are really clicking right now. And that, to me, I think that is probably my favorite game of next weekend, Bethel at UMHB. Two really good teams playing at really high levels, and that should be a very competitive game. I think you got to get pressure on Rossi. You got to get him out of the pocket. He's going to, and I know want isn't necessarily the right word, but he's going to want to run and maybe feel like he has to rein himself in, especially maybe in the first 30 minutes of the game. And then maybe things might change a little bit in that sense after halftime, depending on the status of the game. Yeah, I mean, what a great quarterback matchup in that game. Jaron Rosti and Kyle King, both Gallardi semifinalists, should be a really, really fantastic game. Another aspect of that game that I'm looking forward to, Bethel secondary against UMHB's wide receivers, Brandon Jordan, KJ Miller going through. Devin Williams, I think, is a guy, he's he's a freshman, Yeah, but... He's, he's a big kid, and I think he's got athleticism to make for a fun matchup with Brandon Jordan, kind of like what we saw a little bit with Jake Beasley in the Stag Bowl last year against Brandon Jordan. Gordy Trophy voters get to hold on to those ballots until after this quarterfinal game, if they so choose to do. I would encourage them to do so, and then get them in very promptly on the day that you have to file them so that... Frank and I, mostly Frank, can prepare that uh, Gallardi finalist show, which will air on Wednesday, December 7th. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. That was the time of the podcast when we go to Twitter as I sift through and eliminate all of the tweets from parents of freshmen who are brand new to Division Three and have never seen a Division Three bracket. And once we've eliminated all of those questions, we come up with uh, the player to be named later at Sean O'Malley 46, who asks, of the Cinderella's, which win was more impressive, Aurora or Wartburg? And he puts Cinderella's in quotes, uh, which is good because I reject right straight off the notion of Wartburg as Cinderella. I think if you're Cinderella, you don't even get one single home game. Frankly, this is a team that's ranked number 12 in the country. And Greg and I on the record over the course of the past several weeks of the regular season saying that they were underrated even before they played these two games. But I'm going to say on Saturday, uh, Warburg's win is by far more impressive. Aurora had the more impressive win in the first round of the playoffs. But this week, I think it's Warburg hands down. Yeah, if we're looking just at round two, I think Wartburg going up to Collegeville and knocking off the Johnnies, uh, more definitely more impressive than Aurora going to Alma and winning there. Aurora's win almost feels like a comeback a little bit, a little come down for Aurora after you go to Perkins Stadium and beat Whitewater with all of that tradition and all of the all of the trophies that they have. Alma, great season there. Obviously a challenging opponent, but Aurora took care of their business. Warburg going up to St. John's, that's a very difficult place to go play and win. And the manner in which they did it, hanging on for those last 15 minutes with their starting quarterback out, really impressive stuff from Warburg. We'll take a second one from Antoine Cuff at Cuffy Cakes 08. You have heard this guy before asking, 
the question of the day. Would it be beneficial for the NCAA to seed the bracket and just be transparent about travel limitations? At this point with coverage, there is no need to hide. I, no surprise here, agree with this quite forcefully. In the years where there were seedings, people sort of understood this, maybe not. In the years where the committee admitted that seeds existed but would not share them with us, they said, well, people don't understand when you see number one versus number three in a bracket. And so therefore, we're not going to put these things out there. And now when they aren't even willing to admit that some sort of seeding or pecking order exists, I think we've gone we've gone a little far the wrong way here. Yeah. So, you know, tackling Antoine's question here would it be beneficial for the ncaa to see the bracket i don't know ncaa seems to be fine um i don't know if they need it it would be beneficial for the rest of us certainly for us talking about it analyzing things breaking things down it would be beneficial for families and fans of teams to sort of be able to plot where they might have to make travel plans in future rounds if you plan ahead if that's your thing if you're superstitious and you don't want to get a week ahead i understand that as well it's surprising because we just expected mount union to be the top seed and to host that quarterfinal game i think to me like if i had if i had notes for the committee on this i would just ask that they sort of format their bracket in a way like they don't have to tell me what teams are seeded what but you know sort of put them in the places that we expect them to be and that way we we can kind of figure it out and infer things that way. Thanks for the questions. If you have questions that make sense, feel free to tweet them at us using the D3FB hashtag. So we've gotten, you know, an hour or so into this podcast without mentioning the fact that Kevin Bullis announced his retirement. Kevin Bullis, the head coach of UW-Whitewater for the past seven seasons, an assistant coach there for many years before, announced his retirement after the first round loss to Aurora. Uh, Greg, I'm going to say what I've heard here in that this was not actually a reaction to this first round loss, that it had been kind of in the plan all along. Um, Kevin Bullis's daughter is playing college volleyball out on the West Coast. Um, and, you know, his family is split between Whitewater, Wisconsin and California. And they're looking for an opportunity to stop that arrangement and have an opportunity to, you know, watch your family member do this thing in college. Not the first Division Three head coach to do this. Certainly, I would think not the last. It's a big opportunity for Whitewater to do something here. It is. That's a big job opening, and it certainly was, and it garnered a lot of attention the last time it opened up when Lance Leipold left to go to Buffalo. Kevin Bullis, all the congratulations from here to him on a really fantastic uh, career at Whitewater. You know, his record in the WIAC, something like 45 and four in seven seasons. I think he's won four outright championships, shared a fifth in that conference. That is a crazy, crazy win-loss record in that conference. Um, you know, he... He is or was the only active head coach to coach in a stag bowl. Right now there are zero, and that's the way that's going to be for a couple of weeks. But yeah, you know, I think we both talked to Coach Bullis a handful of times, and, you know, he's a very, very thoughtful person and, you know, 
this is something that if he if he did it, he's at peace with it for sure. Other things to note this week. This is just a general reminder to Division Three Sports Information Directors. The deadline for D3Football.com All Region, you have until 8 p.m. to avoid getting a nasty gram from your conference office on this. I went and checked just now. We have 642 nominations in the system so far across 16 positions and six regions. Typically, there are a little over a thousand. So that means that 36% of those nominations are not in. You have waited till the last minute. Our ability to help you on Monday when we're, you know, like at day jobs and stuff like that is going to be a little limited. So just a heads up on that. You have until 8 p.m. on Monday, and then we'll see where things go from there. Nominate those players. So that was our spot check on how many all-region nominations are in. Greg, how about uh, how we did in our uh, playoff score predictions for round two? Really excited to get to our quick hit spot check this week, Pat, because you and I, co-hosts of Around the Nation, had great weekends. We each got seven of eight games right on Saturday. You missed on Bethel. I missed on Delaware Valley. Ryan, Logan, and Riley, they each hit on six games out of eight. They all missed on Delaware Valley. Ryan and Riley missed on Wartburg. Now, you know Logan wasn't missing on Wartburg, but he did miss on Bethel as well. Keith and Frank each picked five games correctly. Round two's results, they have tightened up the leaderboard. I feel like we've been here before, Pat. You and Ryan (laughs) lead the pack with 17 correct picks through two rounds. Logan, Riley, and myself, one game behind with 16 correct picks. Keith and Frank just one game behind that group with 15. Thanks, I hate it. I like being in the lead. I don't like 17 out of 24, but uh, we will take that. Yeah, Logan was definitely not missing on Warburg. Logan Hansen at the St. John's tailgate on Saturday. I'm enjoying a cold beer, let's say. Hams is the local favorite of St. John's fans, and you know, I I, uh, I may reserve my judgment as to whether I qualify hams as a beer, but it was nice and light and did not affect me at all, all day. So that was great. But Logan Hansen's walking around the tailgate with this bag of mini bagels and he's handing out bagels to people saying, this is what the uh, Warburg defense is going to do today. I, in preparing for a possible post-game social media post, grabbed a photo of a bagel on the ground with an empty discarded can of hams, uh, but it turned out not to be uh, usable as uh, Warburg's defense definitely won, even if they did not pitch the shutout. That's good playoff tailgating fun right there, right? Absolutely. You you come in and you're memorable, right? You 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 got a prop. <laughs> Nobody's gonna forget the day Logan Hansen showed up at the Johnny's tailgate. That's right. Better bagels than spreadsheets, I think, for the uh, the hams crowd on Saturday morning. And this was Around the Nation podcast, number 322, released on November 28th of 2022. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out. We've still got more playoff coverage coming up this week. You can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites in general by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports. But if you can't afford to support us in a financial way, you can help us out still by telling a friend, telling a classmate, a fellow alumnus about the show, about the D3Football.com website. Also, you can rate and review us in the various places where people rate and review podcasts. 
You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well. You can find them at DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to our guests, Frank Rossi and Gordon Mann. Thanks to Keith McMillan, the originator of Around the Nation. And thanks to my co-host, Greg Thomas. Really wishing that we had those staggered start times next week. We got those three central games at noon. Break those up a little bit. Right, exactly. Like 15 minutes even would be helpful. A half hour would be great. Warburg has lights. I don't believe Delaware Valley does, but I've been to a night game at Warburg. It might not be lights good enough to put uh, ESPN crew in the stadium for, but uh, they are lights and they generally light that field. Those are actually those actually are not great lights, if I'm being honest. Don Beebe's got all the lights you need. It won't be like that uh, that game at the at the Pine Bowl a few years ago, Winfield <laughs> and Whitworth. I feel like they had to like bring around some cars or ring the ring the field with cars and put some put some headlights on it. And Pat, don't edit out a whole bunch so that you can be right. <laughs> <laughs>